It is great to sing along with you and to hear you. Y'all have beautiful voices. And it's great to gather every Sunday together. And if you're new to Element City Church, uh, hey, I'm Jack, one of the pastors here. And it's, it's an honor and a treat to have you here. I know it takes courage coming to a new place. And we, uh, I, I may look a little sunburned. There were several of us that were out with Cyclovia, uh, out with uh, this giant bike ride that kind of came right by where we do church. And we said, hey, if 20,000 people were riding by, we should say hi. So we did. Uh, and several people put out prayer requests and things. So uh, just be praying over those requests. I know you don't know what they are, but like 50, 60 people put you know, prayer requests and things on our prayer chain. So we can pray as a church for them. Uh, and that would be a great thing. So we are in a series in the book of Daniel uh, in the Old Testament looking at this idea of how do you thrive for God in our here and now? Because Daniel seemed to do that in his life. And so how, what are some principles, some lessons we can learn for our lives, for our here and now? How do we thrive living for God? And uh, how many of you uh, are parents... So many of you are parents, uh, some of you aunts and uncles, and I, and I want you to think about these stages of parenting that you go through. Some of you, uh, I know like just newbies, like you are newbie into this whole parent thing because like you're getting two or three hours of sleep like at night, okay? How many of you are parents and you live through that, you survived, raise your hand. Just, I want you to see this, Josh, because like, so other people survived, they made it, okay? So, because I know this is tough. I'm telling you, sleep deprivation is the worst part uh, of early parenting. Can I get an amen? amen? Okay, see, it's tough. You just gotta get through it. But uh, next kind of the stage is, uh, maybe you had kids go through like the twos, the threes, those ages where there's, why? 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 Why, anyone? And can anyone relate? Okay, so like kids go through this inquisitive phase where like why is the most popular word in their vocabulary. Sometimes it's the only word they use. Um, and so you're just constantly answering questions, telling them about things. And then comes this next phase that's really, uh, it's fun at first. And then uh, just as parents, let's just be real, okay? Because sometimes it just, you're like, really, again? Uh, because like it's that phase where they're like, hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. Hey, look what I can do. Hey, look at me, Your parents. Okay, so like you go through that phase, right? That's a whole look at me type phase. And it's awesome, like, hey, you jumped off a step. That's great, that's so proud of you. 50 times, okay, it's just like, I get it. You can do it, good job. Um, and so as a parent, like you keep trying to cheer authentically, uh, but inside you're like, okay, it's just, you know, it's old now, okay? Um, let's add some like fire into this, or I don't know. Uh, but actually, you don't do that. Uh, but you go through that phase, and here's the reality of the story we're going to look at tonight in Daniel chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Daniel chapter 4. If you have a smartphone, you can actually follow along on version. click on live events. You'll have all of our sermon notes and everything on there. If you want to catch up on any of the sermon series that we've been in or any past ones, uh, you can always go to elementcitychurch.org, click on the Media and More tab and sermons, and you have like the last plethora of the two and a half years of stuff you can find. So... Uh, in this story in Daniel chapter 2, we're going to find a guy who never grew out of the look at me phase, okay? He's just permanently stuck there. Now, I know that doesn't happen anymore in our culture. Oh, <laughs> wait, social media. Okay, so 
there's a few people who continue to get stuck in the, okay, look at me phase, and they never kind of grow past that, no matter what age their birth certificate says that they are. And this is the story of the guy we're going to look at. Now, remember, we've been looking at Daniel and his life and kind of saying, look, one of the things that's unique about him, what, what's so captivating about him is that Daniel was a person with godly convictions, and yet he lived with graceful interactions, that he wasn't a jerk about his faith. He lived in a culture that was so counter to what he knew and actually even what his convictions were about, but he wasn't a jerk about it. In fact, he had these graceful interactions and that we've seen in these last couple chapters and we'll see in some more uh, going forward. And we've seen so many different things in the life of Daniel, kind of looking at this truth that we looked at last week, that hey, biblical faith is not a confidence in the, the solutions that God's gonna give or not a, a confidence in particular outcomes because that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced in Daniel chapter three is like, okay, we're not confident of the outcome here, but God, we're gonna stick with you. Okay, we're gonna ride with you and how you tell us to conduct and, and navigate life no matter the outcomes. We're gonna trust in a sovereign God, not over secure outcomes. And so they did that. God came through in that time. That doesn't mean necessarily that God wouldn't have come through or that he, you know, when we go through trials and tribulations, it doesn't mean that if God doesn't come through, quote unquote, that he's bailing on you. It's the reality of the life we face that we're called to, to follow a sovereign God. And we're gonna look at that a little bit today in Daniel chapter four. And so in Daniel chapter four, here's what we find. Is Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon. Remember, Babylon's kind of like the superpower of the day. You don't cross Babylon, and you certainly don't cross King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the dude. He's the one with the power, and so you don't mess with him. And in this chapter, what you're gonna find is we're gonna look at some things and kind of flash back to some things that are unfolding in his life, and then I want us to draw some application for it. Because the whole chapter is this long story of another dream, okay? Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, chapter two. Daniel interpreted that. Uh, we got to see where all that went. Daniel, and then Daniel three, he builds this giant statue of himself, and then the kind of things go crazy. It's now 32 years later, okay? So we're kind of getting into this, and, and Nebuchadnezzar actually has sent out a decree where he actually writes or is in articulating some of what we're gonna read in Daniel chapter four. And so as we get into this, here's what we see. So this is halfway through the chapter. We're gonna read, this is what happens. Nebuchadnezzar one day is standing on his palace, this massive pass, uh, palace that he built there in Babylon, and he walks out over, looks over everything, and this is what he says. Is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Think of that moment. He's like surveying everything he's ever built and everything that Babylon is. Man, I am awesome stuff. Look at me. It's great. And then something happens that you could read about on your own. I'll paraphrase kind of what happens. An angelic messenger comes and gives a decree to Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, king, that's it. You're going to be driven into the wild, and you're going to live like a donkey for seven years because that's what you are right now. And for seven years, he lives among the wild beasts. You can read about it, like claws, like talons, hair everywhere, like loco, okay, gone, lost his mind 
for seven years. That's not like a seven-minute spaz, okay? That's not like a freak-out moment. That's a long time, right? And so he has this unfold in his life. And then we pick it up a few years later, and he comes to a recognition of something. But if you flash backwards even, this is set up to that one particular day. Because a year before that, he has this dream that's troubling him. And he says to all of his magicians and interpreters, hey, can you interpret this dream? Of course, no one can. And then they go, oh, hey, that guy Daniel, he got that right one time. We should call him. And so he comes in, he interprets the dream. And it's this long dream, paraphrased version, basically is this giant tree that grows out and it covers the whole earth and all the, the beasts of the field and all the people of the earth are fed by it. And yet it comes and an angel messenger says, chop it down and leave the stump, right? And so they chop the whole tree down, they leave the stump and, and this person and it talks about this person kind of living with beast and all this kind of thing. And then it's gonna be restored to him and it grows again and it flourishes and all this. And the king is like, I don't understand what this is. And Daniel interprets the dream and says, King, I, I wish this was for someone else. But this dream's about you. God's given you great power and great authority and bless the world through what's happening in your city and under your reign but you've allowed power to go to your head. And you think it's all about you. Oh king, repent now that maybe God would steer this away from you. And then 12 months unfolds and he takes a little stroll on the top of his palace one day and says, oh, look at me, this is great. And then the dream becomes a reality and unfolds for him for seven years. And things transpire and unfold for him. It's crazy what goes on. And at seven years, at the end of that, he finally comes to his senses and realizes, maybe life isn't always about me. Maybe there's a God who's bigger than me, and he acknowledges that, and his sanity is restored, his kingdom is restored, they begin to, to seek him out and he flourishes again in leadership and he writes these words. At the end of the time, this is verse 34. At the end of the time, oh, let me go here, I lost my notes. Uh -huh. Okay, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever, recognizing he doesn't live forever, God does. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and my splendor returned to me and the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So he comes to a realization, a reality check, a gut check big time of where he's at in this journey. Now, so what? Okay, uh, anyone here have world dominion? No, you don't. 
okay? So you probably don't struggle with this, hey, look at the great Babylon, look at me, look at me, look at me. Uh, so what do we do with this? Where, where do we go with this story? Because you can read it this week. It's a crazy story. It's, it's another chapter in this weird melodrama thing that's playing out in Daniel's life and in the region of which he's in. So if you're not positioned for world dominion and domination of that, so how, how does this apply to us? And that's where I'd love to kind of spend the rest of our time unpacking some, some truths for us to take. What does the story mean to a people that we like dominion and we like control and we like power? In fact, we're kind of taught from a really early age. Look at me. Look at me. And it's kind of embedded into us to seek this out and to look for that control and to gain that and to grow in that. And is that a bad thing or is that a good thing or is it a, is it a medium thing? Is it, some, is it just a thing? And, and how do we not let pride become a part of our life? And that's what I'd like to under, help us understand and wrestle with. When the Bible talks about pride, it's an interesting thought because there's so many verses in the Bible, like Proverbs 16, 18, that says, pride goeth before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. Haughtiness is just a cool word we should all use more in our language, but haughtiness before, like, before a fall. That, okay, pride goeth before the fall. We've all heard that phrase, right? That someone's gonna get tripped up if they have pride. What you have to understand from a biblical perspective, in the English language, uh, what word do we have for pride? It's not a trick question. What word do we have for the word pride? Pride, okay, that's what we got. Uh, that's, that's all we got, we're English language, we're, we're not cool like other cool languages that have multiple languages and multiple meanings for things. We have one word. Now, can you take pride in your work? And is there a positive side to pride? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you take pride in, in maybe your kids and the, their accomplishments and the things that they go on. You take pride in, in the work that you do and that it's, it's good effort that goes into it and that you're doing your best and bringing your best, that God deserves our excellence. And so we, in all things that we do, we're created to work as if we're working for the Lord. And so we can take a sense of pride in that. But when the Bible talks about pride goeth before destruction, what it's really getting at is kind of this, this contrast experience between a healthy sense of pride in what we do and what we can accomplish in this unhealthy sense of pride, which is really, we'll use the word arrogance, because that's probably a better fit to what the biblical word for pride, that it's arrogance that goes before destruction. That if you were to put it in, in kind of understanding where the Greek language is coming from and what it's written in, that's kind of what it's leaning toward, that helps us get a better grip on what a sense of pride, because there's a sense of healthy pride, having a confidence in your abilities, having confidence in the fact that the abilities and the gifts and talents God's given you, he's given you as a gift, and he wants you to work on those and to continue to harness those and continue to improve and get better at those. That's not something we need to be ashamed about. That it's this idea that I can be better at something than someone else. The crazy part and the, the, where you get sideways is when you begin to say, I'm better than someone else. That's where things start to go sideways and we kind of deviate away from a healthy sense of pride and into this unhealthy sense. In fact, even Paul writes about this, Romans 12, three, here's what he says. For the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. The reverse of that is like, 
Don't think of yourself too lowly either. But rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Like, don't puff yourself up and make yourself like this incredible thing. Like, don't overinflate yourself and your abilities, but don't undersell who you are and the gifts and talents that God's put within you. Some of you are amazingly talented at so many things that I could never do in a million years. And you should harness that. God's given that gift to you. Work on that, improve that, develop that, and use it for his story and for his glory. That's, that's what we're meant to do. And so there's a healthy side to pride in that. But there's an arrogance that can go to a place where that's kind of what we're seeing in the life of Nebuchadnezzar prior to what he came to a conclusion that decided things for him on a spiritual level. Here's what he got. It's what he, maybe what we need to be aware of is this. Be aware of the slow creep of pride. I'll put arrogance in, in there. The slow creep of arrogance in your life. Beware of its pull on your heart. Every single one of us will face moments where we want it to be about us, where we want everything in the world to be about us and we push for that and we need to be careful in those moments. We need to be aware and then beware of those moments because that's the heeding that Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar that he didn't take advantage of. O king, repent now that maybe God will change this and a full 12 months goes by. God gave plenty of time for Nebuchadnezzar to get this right, to kind of get his spiritual house, his life in order and yet it kept delaying, kept delaying and it never took fruition. And so God carried out what he knew he was gonna do. And so there's this challenge that when unhealthy pride begins to, to kind of creep into our life, it doesn't come running or barreling into our life, it's like a slow crawl. You'll begin to feel it, begin to see it, begin to sense it in how you interact and how you react to people. And it needs to be, you need to be aware of that. It's like, be aware of, I wrote down a few different things for us to, to be kind of be aware of. Be aware of looking down on others. When you find yourself being able to say, look, I'm not just better at something than someone, so-and-so, but I'm actually better than so-and-so. That's where your heart is beginning to have this grip of arrogance begin to come more and more into your life. When you think of the rules and that the rules of life don't apply to you, they just apply to other people, well, Friend, that's a, that's a danger zone to be. Let me get real practical. This was something that God used, a very simple thing, to kind of point this out in my own life. Uh, how many of you go shopping at a shopping market? Okay, like Fry's or someplace like that. Uh, we're not sponsored by them. Okay, so uh, like, <clears throat> I just happen to like them. And I remember uh, going shopping probably six, seven years ago, and I had one of those God moments that is out of the blue, and I got all my stuff, I put it into the car, and the cart, right? What do you do with a cart? It's there, and, and like the cart return thing is so far away. It's just this inconvenience. And so I do what every American does. I, I put it in front of the car, right? Or I put it in the space that's empty next to me, right? And so I, I do that in this moment, and I remember shutting the door, getting in, getting ready to start the car, and uh, I just, it wasn't an audible voice or anything. It was just like God was like, 
Really? <laughs> really? And I remember looking out of the window at the cart, and I was like, oh, so far over there. And I remember going, okay, God, I'll do it this time. So I got out of the car, and I rolled the cart over, put it in the cart corral, and I patted myself on the back. I'm a better American than everybody else. Um, and went back into my car, drove away. And I remember the next time getting there, and I remember the cart, and that moment again. And I was like, you know, I just need to do that. Listen, the unspoken rules is that I just put the cart back in the cart thing. It's just an unspoken rule, just do it, okay? And I remember being like, I don't want to do it. It's five spaces over. And God and I just arguing about things. And then I would just do it. And I felt better several minutes later. Um, but the challenge, it really became it such a simple, small thing. But what it began to point out in my own heart was, why do you feel like you're better than everybody else? If this is the unspoken rule that people just put it back in the cart thing, why, why are you better? That, why are you more important? And why is your time more valuable than the person next to you? And I remember God and I having this conversation. Again, not audible. I didn't journal about it or anything. It's just, it was a practical moment where he began to point some things out in me of like, hey, that pride thing, that arrogance thing, that's a slow creep. And this is one of those areas where I'm gonna point it out to you. And going, oh, cart. Listen, there are many other stories I can give you of this conversation that God and I have all the time where he's pointing out this slow creep of arrogance in my own life taking advantage of the weak, taking advantage of the people that you can take advantage of. That as an employer, you know, maybe you have authority at your occupation of where you are. And there's some things that you can do or you can delegate it and you use that word delegate, but really what you're doing is you're just saying, look, I'm better than you and you could do that and I don't have to. Okay. So you do that. So like rolling cases around here was just one of those things. I was like, I don't want to do that. But the reality is, hey, Jesus would do that. So just shut up and roll a case. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're right. Uh, and so like it's all these things that we all need to watch in our own life. I love what uh, the book of Proverbs says this in verse uh, chapter 29 says this, the righteous care about justice for the poor but the wicked have no such concern. It's never even on their radar screen to care about people who are maybe disadvantaged or have a less of a shot or a less of a platform than they do. Less of an advantage maybe than they do. So it just never enters the radar screen. And I think the Bible is calling, the scriptures called to us as followers of Jesus to say look, uh, we better give a rip about people who are not less than you because they're not, who maybe have external challenges that are different than you. And so as you go throughout your life, listen, you can't fix every problem in the world. You can't. But you can fix the next one that crosses your path. We have this saying around here, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And then there's moments where God presents an opportunity for you to help and to step up and to step forward. You can do that. God's not gonna ask you to fix every problem in Tucson. 
He won't. He hasn't gifted you the resources right now, currently, maybe he will, to do that. But he has gifted you the opportunity of your time and your resources to partner with him to fix some issue, to help some person. The arrogant say, I deserve what I have. The humble say, how can I help? We need the church to be filled with people who say, how can I help? How can I help? I think in our culture, friends, more people who follow Jesus like that win an audience with people who are searching for something that they have not found yet. And they can find a Jesus who has been deeply searching for them. When they are recognized that people around can say, how can I help? I can't help everyone, I can't fix everything, but how can I help you? I'm not gonna live an arrogant life where it's just about me and and I deserve what I have and I've worked hard for it. Yes, you have. Maybe fourth thing is blowing God off. I think sometimes we're all guilty of that. Here's the definition I wanna give you for that. Definition of blowing God off is calculating life and making decisions without ever adding God into the equation. Making your decisions and thinking about how you're gonna navigate life without ever adding God into the equation, it becomes so easy when we allow the the creep of arrogance, the creep of pride, to kind of begin to to slowly step into our heart and, and gain more traction there just to blow God off and not really think about what he has to say about things or not read the scriptures and think about what he has to share about how we live our life and how our thought life is and how we interact with life that we just don't even think about it. That sometimes we just kind of fade from what we know God calls us to and we just kind of I just kind of call it that slow Christian fade. You just fade into the backdrop and God isn't a part of the equation anymore. And the challenge for us is to live as a humble person. I think that person keeps God in the forefront, keeps him in the equation of all things that you're navigating in life. The Bible has a lot to say about this pride deal, about this arrogance. Here's a couple verses. Proverbs 8, 13 says this. God's saying, look, I hate arrogance. Proverbs 15, 25. I will tear down the house of the arrogant. God hates and God attacks pride. Listen, if God hates pride and God attacks pride, we probably shouldn't keep pride around. Sounds like he doesn't like it, right? If it's something he hates and it's something he attacks, maybe we should package that up and send that away, right? Here's the challenge throughout the scriptures, is don't let pride, don't let that arrogance get a grip in you. God does not like that. That's why James 4.10 says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You don't have to try to lift yourself up. He will lift you up. So how can we leverage some of the scripture, some of the things we're understanding? How do we begin to gain traction in this idea of not letting pride gain traction in our heart? Maybe a couple things. Learn to share the credit and remember the helping hands. Learn to share the credit and remember the helping hands. Sharing the credit is saying, look, it's not all about me. It's this idea that everything that we're a part of, there are people in your life who are playing a major role in that. And as you 
share the credit of that and you pass that around. You don't let the spotlight be always on you. That as you pass that around, you're not, you're kind of keeping that arrogant creep from getting into your heart and allowing it to gain traction and, and to gain treadwear in your life that you're beginning to remember the people who have played so much a part of getting you to where you are right now and that you don't forget that and that you allow your mind to live with an attitude of gratitude for that, that at work that you realize that there's so many people that play a part of the team that makes your work run and it's not just you. You have a key role and you have a contribution to make and you should make it. And you should do the absolute best you can with that. But the truth is, it's a lot of people that are playing a role in that. The same here at this church. There's a lot of people from volunteers all the way up to ministerial staff and to all of our staff that play a role to make elements what it is. It's not one person. It's several hundred people who are playing a part in helping us be and bring the hope of Jesus to the heart of the city. And everybody has a role to play in that. And so you share that credit, that you make that a point of how you live your life, and that you learn to ask, what's in this for God? You don't always allow the heart to go to, what's in this for me? Because that's where our American culture pushes us. What's in this for me? And maybe the question we need to push back to keep arrogance at bay is, what's in this for God? How can this build his story? How can this promote his grace and his hope for the world? I wrote this, humility is not just an attitude that we're to adopt. It must be a lifestyle we live. And it's not just an attitude check kind of thing. It's a lifestyle kind of thing. That when you humble yourself before God, you're saying, God, you're number one and I'm not. You drive, I'll ride shotgun. Here's the keys. You take it. You're big, I'm little. You're unlimited, I'm limited. You're incredible. I'm okay. I'm good. But you're incredible. That's what worship is. Think about it like a little kid. When we worship on Sundays, gosh, let this capture your mindset because it'll change the way you worship. If you just come before your heavenly father and say, man, you are so awesome. You are so big. You are so crazy, complicated, and awesome. It's amazing. You're, like, you're running a universe right now. It's like several hundred thousand universes. And like, you're just huge. And I'm, I'm Jack, 45. <sighs> Not doing a whole lot. I have a family of five. I don't even control that. <laughs> but see, when you get into this mindset, that's what worship is. It's saying, God, you're big. I'm little. You are muy importante. I'm okay. I'm significant, but I'm not you. You drive, I'll ride shotgun. That's humility. And that's the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned. It took him, how long? Seven years. Never cutting his fingernails. Never shaving anybody hair. Listen, I don't recommend that plan, okay? The people who like you and love you, 
are gonna struggle, okay? When you have not showered in seven years and you eat grass for a living, okay? Just listen, I'm telling you right now, just choose a different path because there's another way. Say, God, you're big, I'm little, it's okay. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Healthy humility. Love what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christ follower. You're kind of investigating spiritual things. I'm telling you, if you want to read a classic book about Christianity from a, from a guy who was a skeptic, a guy who was skeptical, who went on to become this great, thoughtful person around faith, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not downgrading you. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's this idea of saying, God, I'm not gonna make it all about me all the time. I want it to be about you. You're big, I'm little. And so how do I live my life that way? See, a healthy humility will help spiritual transformation of what God wants to do in you and through you if you keep humility at the base of who you are and just your character and how you live, not just an attitude that you have, but a lifestyle in which you live, that you live this out. And so learn to live in the shadow of God's sovereignty. He oversees everything. He wants to partner with you to oversee a couple things. But he oversees everything. And he's got dominion and power over everything. And he said to you, look, I get you a little bit of dominion, a little bit of power, you have edges, you have limits, but I wanna partner with you but I got it, okay? I'll drive, you ride shotgun. And in a culture that wants to push us in everything to drive. Humble people, humble followers of Jesus learn to be satisfied with shotgun. Knowing that that's the best seat to be in. That's where Nebuchadnezzar came to. I love the ending of this. Can we just read it again? Nebuchadnezzar writes, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, look at me. What's he saying? Look at him. Don't look at me. Look at him. That's the attitude and lifestyle of a humble person. Look at him, look how awesome he is. He's the king of heaven because everything he does is right. All his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, ooh, boy, is he able to humble. See, our power is limited. It's always on loan and it's temporary. The challenge for us is to say, I'm okay with that. God, you're big, I'm little. Man, you're awesome, I'm okay. You drive, I'll ride shotgun. And to live and cultivate a humble heart that is aware of when arrogance begins to creep or that pride begins to creep because it will. It's not that it, if it does, it's when it does. It will want to creep into your heart and into your life and into how you live. And so you have to be aware of that. And you have to live with a humble heart that doesn't make it always about you. Return your shopping carts. 
Find practical ways that remember, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not all that in a bag of chips. God's big, I'm little. I ride with him. And so Father, as we move into a time of uh, communion, as we move into a space to kind of contemplate and think, maybe this hits each of us in a different way, maybe you've been whispering Holy Spirit all throughout tonight of maybe something, that a nugget of truth for us to hold on to. I ask that you would allow that to dig into us, to our soul, to our heart, that we would take that to heart, we'd own that, we'd hold on to it. As we create space to, to lean into these last worship songs, to remember the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, that that he had all the power in the world and he set it aside because he loves us and he humbled himself because he thought we were worth searching for. And we have value, not because we're awesome or we're important, we have value because the creator of the heavens and the earth moved heaven and earth to get to us. That's what we remember in the life of your son. And so as we take this bread and hold this cup, the giving of his body, the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, the healing of our heart and our brokenness, we remember. Would you help us to be a people who live with a humble heart, who say to the world, a watching world around us, how can we help? Who begin to to beware of the, the creep of arrogance that wants to get into our heart that our world promotes, that we'd push back on that. That we'd be a people who recognize that humility is what leads to spiritual transformation with you. And we wanna be changed by you. So move in our hearts, in our midst, these next couple minutes Stir us anew and afresh, Jesus.